This episode on the Culture Quest. I go through some philosophical thought experiments in Tavern Talk with varying degrees of success before the main discussion of Cowboy Bebop, a Japanese animated series. And then to close out the episode, Anon will introduce next week's topic, a Transformers comic book, The Last Stand of the Wreckers. Hello and welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers and now we carry that weight. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Barrio. Hello. And I am Inanna. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Oh, wait, wait, sorry. Um, sorry, Inanna. I've, I've left um, something in the fridge. Uh, I, actually, no, <laughs> don't worry. I'll, I'll get it later. <laughs> Today, we're going to discuss Cowboy Bebop, an anime TV show that, not unlike other things we've done in the past, combines sci-fi and space genres with cowboys and westerns. We'll get to that in a minute. And as usual, before we do that, we always enjoy a bit of tavern talk. But before we even do that, we want to quickly sort of announce that the Culture Quest is now part of the All the People Network. All the People Network is a network of indie podcasts that features shows that touch many different subjects by people from all around the world. It's still very small. At the moment, it consists of six podcasts, including us. And all of these podcasts are made by independent creators, just like us. Being a part of the the network will create opportunities to collaborate on stuff uh, with like-minded people, as we already have. A few of our network mates have already donated their voices to help and create the intro bit of our Jurassic Park episode. We hope to do things like that again and maybe swap segments with other podcasts, uh, maybe guests on each other's podcasts. We have a few plans for other interesting things to do together in the future. And other than collaborating and supporting each other, joining this network will probably not affect this podcast. Like the quest will go uninterrupted. Um, So let me tell you a line or two about each of the podcasts that are part of All the People Network. The first one is All the People You Should Know podcast by Josh in Oregon in USA. Oregon, Oregon, Oregon? Oregon, man. (laughs) By Josh in Oregon, USA. (laughs) Um, His podcast is a history podcast that discusses the lesser known historical figures. And if you check it out, feel free to start with the episode in which I was a guest. Then we have the Assorted Goods podcast by Dan from Canada. Dan discusses and analyzes world events. He's recently done an amazing episode about Amazon and Jeff Bezos, which I totally recommend. I second that. Then we have the Controller Disconnected podcast by Matt from Brazil. Matt mainly discusses anything video games related in his podcast. Then there's the Happy Hour Gets Weird by Cassie and Tiff from California. They discuss paranormal stuff, true crime, cults, sex, and they do all that while drinking delicious cocktails. 
And then there's the Off the Record podcast in which Mike, Brandon, Alex, and Kwan discuss anything from family and culture to politics and mental health. They've recently had a discussion about the Washington football team name change that is going on at the moment that I found to be very informative. And then there's the Culture Quest, which just might be the best of the bunch. Uh, it's supposed to be really deep, riveting, and enlightening. And also, the hosts are really cool and really good-looking. Hell yeah! <laughs> Check out the network at allthepeoplenetwork.com or find us on Instagram or Twitter. I'll put the links in the show notes. And if you see something there that makes you think, oh, my mom would find this interesting, or man, my best friend was looking for a podcast like this one, or anything like that, then spread the word. And now, it is high time for some tavern talk. So today I thought, uh, I don't know if it's super cultural, but it doesn't need to be. It's Tavern Talk. I thought I'd introduce five thought experiments in philosophy. So a thought experiment, or I think Albert Einstein called it a Gedanken experiment, <laughs> um, is basically where you invent hypothetical circumstances or more simplified versions of reality, but you change some, um, some characteristic of that reality and you try to invoke an intuition. An intuition is just like a feeling that something should follow. So for instance, like a, a thought experiment is usually used in philosophy to prove your argument. And you can do that by doing a reduction to absurdity or something for the opposing argument, or you can, um, it's, it's basically a way that you can make transparent something that wouldn't be so transparent in today's circumstances. But if you sort of bring out the variables, then you can see why it's true. And um, the ones I've thought of today, uh, there's a couple classics, there's a couple uh, new ones to me, there's a few, well, I'm doing five, but they're, they're, there's a bit of a range. So I think this is going to be an experiment. Let's just start and see how it goes. So I said there's five. If there's less than five when you listen to it, you know I fucked up. <laughs> I'll start with a sort of a traditional one to get us started. All right, so this one is by John Searle, and Searle asks you to imagine yourself as an English speaker. You're a monolingual English speaker, so you don't speak any other languages. You're locked in a room, and you're given a large batch of Chinese writing, and you get a second batch of Chinese script, and you also get a set of rules, but that's in English. And for correlating the second batch with the first batch, both in Chinese, you have to use the English translation to basically use an algorithmic process to match the second batch to the first batch. Now, the rules correlate one set of formal symbols with another set of formal symbols, formal meanings that you can identify the symbols entirely by their shapes. So basically the Chinese writing, you don't, no one actually tells you what it means. They're just shapes on a page. Now the people giving you the symbols called the first batch of script, which is a data structure with natural language processing applications. They call the second batch a story and they call the third batch questions. So the symbols you give back, they call answers to questions. And the set of rules are in English, of course. They call that the program. So you yourself know none of this. Simplified is there's a bunch of Chinese coming in and there's a bunch of Chinese coming out. You have instructions to tell you when something comes in how to arrange the letters to produce something and then you put it out. 
right? And you're following the instructions and you're getting good. You're getting fast and you're you're efficient. You feel like you start to recognize the characters. You go, I, I remember this one, this squiggly one. And you're, you're just beating your times. It's going great, right? But the problem is, right, to the outside observer, you're speaking Chinese. So they're putting out a question for you and you're giving them an answer. But you don't, you don't really understand the Chinese. You have inputs and outputs that are indistinguishable from a native Chinese speaker, but you will never be able to recognize a single character that you see for its meaning, right? So basically, John Searle used this to say that computers or strong AI can never actually understand something. So when you give Google Translate, I want to go to the shopping center or something, and it outputs that in Chinese, it can never understand it. So even if you, conscious person, are in the brain of this being or whatever it is, John Searle is basically saying, you'll never be able to understand anything as a computer. So that was his argument. So he's using this thought experiment to say, you'll never be able to have anything more than just a process. That's really interesting. It's like you can input anything into Google Translate, and it'll translate it to any language and back. To us, it'll be a perfect translation or something close to that, but nowhere in the process does the computer know what it's, what's the data it's working with. Yeah, that's right. So I think it, it, it's pretty transparent when it's in a computer, just like at your Surface Pro. But if we start to build robots that have limbs, and then those those robots with limbs sort of start to talk to us and they learn from us as well, because there's nothing that could prevent this from building on its on its algorithm. It's basically just trying to say, like, no matter how realistic they can get, there's there's never going to be an understanding. You can't get semantics from syntax. Hmm. So in what situation would you use this argument? It was basically made again. It was made in the 80s and it was made against the argument that strong AI would actually be able to understand you. So if you had like an AI assistant that was following you around, it started to know you, knew how you liked your coffee. So say we, we substitute Chinese for feelings. So say you're feeling bad and you come into the room, you have some external signs that you're not feeling great, but they're minimal, they're quite subtle. Even if this AI robot could say, oh, hey, Peter, what's going on? Did you have a bad day? offers you like your favorite sort of beverage or something. You can never actually understand what you're going through. It's just running the algorithm. That's basically all it's trying to say. Hmm. I, I guess it's something that is a bit more intuitive when you're, you also talk about conscious, right? Like, can you know something if you're not conscious about it? I was trying to avoid it because that is another thing as well. Because my, my opinion would be if you're not conscious, you wouldn't be able to understand it. Yeah, but let's pretend like that you are in a room and you are translating or maybe not translating but manipulating data in Chinese, then you are conscious to it, but Yeah, that's true. Get nothing that's from true. It. Nothing you would all. be conscious. That you would be conscious. But you would just never be able to understand what you're doing as a machine. Do you think that it does apply? Like you said it's from the eighties. Do you think that even today we believe that's how AI will interact with people? Like they'll never actually understand what we're talking about? Uh, what you call it, semantics from syntax? Um, no, I don't think it does. I don't think it applies. Well, because if you think about it, if we originally were single cells, I feel like you could get meaning. As If you're willing to admit that I can get meaning from you right now, I, I think that's the argument right there. I think, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel pretty strongly that 
that a strong AI could get meaning from things. I just, I just, I just have that strong intuition. But this thought experiment doesn't change me, but it definitely like it brings up doubts, and then I'm not sure how to exactly square it with this thought experiment. It makes you see things from a different angle. Yeah, yeah. In general, I think in, in linguistics and also in, in what they call NLP, like natural language processing, yeah. like language is structured in, in some kind of a, an algorithm or, or, or maybe, you know, something that you can pretty much analyze. But there are two different steps. I'm not sure if necessarily this is how the brain actually works. You analyze it syntactically and then you analyze it semantically. Regarding that, there's an interesting uh, experiment. I think it's called like the cocktail party experiment, where you stand in a cocktail party and there's a lot of noise. People are talking nonstop around you. And then someone shouts out your name and you're actually able to kind of turn around and, and look at it. And it's not necessarily because it's in a higher volume, but it kind of grabs your attention. And that's interesting because you hear a lot of other talking, but you don't necessarily pay attention to them. But then when you hear your name, but because it, it does have filter. some kind of a semantic, yeah, the, like it passes the semantic filter and then you can actually um, respond to it. And, and that's very interesting because does it mean that we already kind of like give this very shallow semantic analysis of, of what we hear unconsciously? Or is there some kind of another mechanism that um, help us to understand? That's interesting. Mm. I, I had that at work actually the other day. Like someone was asking me to do something and I was sort of, I was like nodding my head. I sort of, I thought I understood it. And then they went away and I, I had this particular question. I think it was like whether, because we email things and we do things with paper as well. I couldn't remember if he said to do it by email or paper. And then I heard it again. I heard him exactly how he said it, like in his voice. And obviously the air molecules weren't moving or anything, but in my head, it was indistinguishable from hearing it again. It's like I processed it like a minute later. It, it, it was very weird. Hmm. I don't know. I, it's not exactly the same thing, but like, I don't know if you guys tried it, but if you guys sit in like a quiet room, maybe it helps even to turn off the lights and you kind of concentrate enough, you can imagine someone calling your name, you know, and it feels exactly like someone is actually calling your name. It's like I said, there are no air molecules moving. There's no sound being produced, but you can somehow trick your brain into actually processing mm. that sound again. It's a lot of fun. All right, the second one. Um, this one's called the brainstorm machine. So first, I just want to introduce what qualia is. You don't, do you know what qualia is? No. Okay, I'll quickly introduce it. So um, qualia is feelings and experiences vary widely. For example, I run my fingers over sandpaper, smell a skunk, feel a sharp pain in my finger, seem to see bright purple, become extremely angry. In each of these cases, I'm the subject of a mental state with a very distinctive subjective character. There is something it is like for me to undergo each state, some phenomenology that it has. Philosophers often use the term qualia or a singular quail to refer to the introspectively accessible phenomenal aspects of our lives. Okay, so basically qualia is like what it is like to see a color. Like colors are very interesting because it's inherently just subjective. So like when you see red, qualia is, is what it is like for you to see that color, right? So anyway. This one is by Daniel Dennett, who's 
great philosopher and a lot of his thought experiments sort of, or he calls them intuition pumps actually, but (laughs) um, a lot of his thought experiments sort of go along the same lines, but um, this one's probably one of the best ones. Suppose that there are some neuroscientific apparatus that fits on your head and feeds your visual experience into your brain. And I think this was written before VR. So let's just assume (laughs) it's VR. You have your eyes closed. So it's a bit different to VR, I guess. Anyway, with eyes closed, I accurately report everything you are looking at. So I'm looking at what Inon would be looking at. Except that I marvel at how the sky is yellow and the grass is red and so forth. Would this not confirm empirically that our qualia were different? So what it's like for you to see grass is different from what it's like for me to see grass. But suppose a technician then pulls the plug on the connecting cable. Now, this cable um, or this plug is just two circles, so you can invert it 180 degrees and just put it in the socket again. Now, um, when I'm closing my eyes and I'm reporting what Anon sees, the sky looks blue, the grass looks green, and so forth. So which is the right orientation of the plug? So designing and building such a device would require that its fidelity be tuned or calibrated by the normalization of two subjects' reports. So we would be right back at our evidential starting point. The moral of the intuition pump is that no intersubjective comparison of qualia is possible even with perfect technology. So there's nothing that I could say that it should look like this or it should look like that because we just would have no way of seeing what would be the correct way to orientate Mm. the plug. What I like about this one is that everyone's saying like, oh, what happens if my yellow is like different to your yellow? But there's no way we could see it right now. Like there's no, there's no way to see it. But if you had this plug and I saw something different, it still lands you at this stalemate where you can't say anything is the right way up, which is so so much different to like the objective world where there's something you can measure. You can go out and like just draw up with a measuring stick, how big something is or, you know, but with, with this is, it's just, it's, it's two people's account and there's no way to reconcile them. Huh. Like I'm looking at the Google Docs symbol right now, which is blue. And I'm thinking, is it though? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like the thought that maybe everyone's got their favorite, favorite color, right? Maybe it's all the same color. Mm. Maybe we, we're all attracted to, you know, what's eventually blue, yeah. right? But each of us has a different uh, experience it under a different yeah. label. Huh. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, so like, for instance, like a lot of our color is like based on like blood is a particular color. The sky is a particular color. Grass is a particular color. And, you know, these things arise from different things. Like, obviously, blood is 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 red and people associate that with fear. The, um, the grass is green, photosynthesis, and then our subjective experience. So that's why I had to explain qualia. So like what it's like for me to see the sky. Like when I say it's like a soothing color, like blue is quite like a soothing color compared to red. The thing is, you might actually be seeing just a soothing red. You yeah. Know? That might be what it's like for you to see it. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's an I think it's a smart one, and it's sort of like one of those ones you'll get on the drive home. Like I think it's quite an inter- interesting one. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it actually reminds me of another another experiment, the one with um with Mary and actually experiencing. Oh yeah, Mary, the color scientist. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. one's slightly different, but I can go over it if you want. Yeah, I think I I think it it relates very nicely to what we just talked. So Mary is a person that's in a black and white room and. 
let's just imagine she doesn't see herself, but she's in a black and white room with no color. But she has books, black and white books, that tell her everything she can possibly know about color. So she knows other people's accounts of color. She Hmm. knows how there's um, three sort of cones in your retina that pick up color and then they do a mix to get blends. And then she knows what happens like sort of in your brain. Like she knows what regions light up and she knows the physics of light. She knows all like radio waves. She knows everything about it. She knows even the cultural aspect. She knows like what color certain soccer teams are. She knows Manchester United is red and she knows red is also blood. So she knows everything except she's never seen color. Very cruel, isn't it? She loves color and she's never seen it. But uh, anyway, uh, one day she goes outside and she sees like everything. She sees the the blue sky, maybe the yellow sky. No, the blue sky. (laughs) And then the green grass and red blood and everything, right? Does she actually learn anything new by seeing the color? The reason I say it's a bit different is it, like I'm thinking now actually that it's a better thought experiment, but <laughs> what the reason why it's different is because this one is trying to say that there's something else but physical things. So like it's trying to say something about like subjective knowledge. So is there something you can know only like subjectively that can't be obtained just by objective observation? Whereas the Dan Dennett's one is is to do with basically phenomenology which well i guess they're both to do with phenomenology i I think that's the qualia right like the qualia is actually experiencing something that's true yeah uh, like experiencing the quality of something by yourself it's it's that's true so she has everything but the qualia yeah it's something that you can't really can't teach it you can't talk about it you have to experience yeah yeah so no that's perfect actually because it is the experience it is so qualia isn't available you can't just write down qualia by definition you can't can only be experienced Anyway, moving on. Cool. Yeah, this is really cool. Keep, keep going. Third one, or the second one if I fucked up, um, <laughs> Twin Earths. So this one's a new one to me, actually, and um, I've only discovered it recently. I thought it was quite interesting. So we begin by supposing that elsewhere in the universe, there's a planet exactly like Earth in virtually all aspects, which we refer to as Twin Earth. We should also suppose that like relevant surroundings are exactly the same, so... The Eiffel Tower is exactly where the Eiffel Tower is. Like, we're recording this podcast right now. It's exactly the same. Like, molecule for molecule. Almost. It revolves around a star that appears to be exactly like our sun. And on Twin Earths, there is a twin equivalent of every person and thing there is on Earth. The one difference between the two planets is that there is no water on Twin Earth. In its place, there's a liquid that is superficially identical. So... You can run your hands through it and it will feel exactly the same. And you can put it in your cocktail. You can um, shower with it. There's no difference on, I guess you could say, the phenomenological level, right? Mm. Um, But chemically, being composed not of H2O, it's actually composed of something just called, we'll call it XYZ because they do. And it's a little bit more complicated, right? Now... The twin earthlings who refer to their language as English, as we do, they call this XYZ water. So they call it what we do. So basically, everywhere in the oceans, they have this thing called XYZ, when for us it's H2O. So here's the thought experiment. We set a date um, of our thought experiment to be several centuries ago. So maybe we'll say 1,500, right? Yeah. And... The residents of Earth and Twin Earth would have no means of knowing that liquids 
that they call water were H2O and XYZ. So we haven't got to the molecular level of chemistry yet. The experience of people on Earth with water and that of those on Twin Earth with the XYZ molecule water stuff is identical, exactly the same, because it couldn't have affected history because phenomenologically it's the same, but we haven't got to that level. So the question arises when an Earthling and its twin on Twin Earth say water, do they mean the same thing? No. <laughs> this is breaking my mind. <laughs> this is really good. It, it is good, isn't it? Because a lot of people argue, well, people argue a million things in philosophy, but the biggest one is saying, well, when I say water, I'm not talking about H2O, I'm talking about the feeling of it. I'm talking about like the uses, talking about the feeling, talking about what it looks like. The, fu- the functional aspects of water. Yeah. The, the point of the thought experiment, because as I said, all thought experiments are basically to prove a point. Um, the contents of a person's brain are not sufficient to determine the reference of terms they use, as one must also examine the causal history that led to the individual acquiring the term. So basically, you, like if you learn the word water in a world filled with H2O um, compared to a world filled with XYZ, it brings a different meaning, which is what the author is trying to say. So... The effect of it is basically you can't do a brain scan and tell someone exactly what they mean because you need to basically follow the history of exactly what they're saying. That's interesting. All right. We done with that one? Yeah. All right. So this one's called Boltzmann's Brains. Um, I'll start out with just defining some stuff. So if you guys you know, don't have it on the top of your head, the second law of thermodynamics states that the total entropy of an isolated system can never decrease over time and is constant if and only if all processes are reversible. So I'm not sure if any of you guys have a knowledge of physics. I know you're currently reading particle physics, a short introduction, Anon, (laughs) but (laughs) I read your good read updates. But basically entropy is just, so you have a room that has just air molecules, right? And maybe when you go into the room, there's a little bit of heat in the left side of the room, but in the right side, it's a little bit colder. Now, eventually, that's going to equalize over time. And it's going to get to the point where it's just going to stay at room temperature, like 26 degrees Celsius, just basically forever. But in each of these little molecules, right, there's going to be small fluctuations in movement just through randomness. And basically, you're going to get small little warm spots. Not because anything's happened in the room, but just through randomness, there's going to be more activity in one area of the room. So basically, the total entropy in an isolated system, so the isolated system is the room, it can never go down, so it's always going to be more stable than it was, but there's going to be little pockets that are going to be unstable, right? So the first theory, now believed to be the correct one, is that the universe started for some unknown reason in a low entropy state. Now, the second and alternative theory attributed in 1895 to Boltzmann's assistant Ignaz Schutz is the Boltzmann universe scenario. In this scenario, the universe spends the vast majority of eternity in a featureless state of heat death. So let's just call this like the room where it's just 26 degrees, right? Except it's the universe. So there's going to be small pockets of sort of heat and stuff, but it's still evening out, right, over time. But it's never going to get to a state where it's there's no activity because particles are always going to randomly bounce and get close to each other. 
So over eons, eventually a very rare thermal fluctuation will occur, which we just talked about, where atoms bounce off each other in exactly such a way as to form a substructure equivalent to our entire observable universe. So basically, these little heat pockets, if you extend time out to infinity, eventually all those particles are going to arrange themselves either exactly how we find ourselves now, so they're going to arrange ourselves in sort of planets and stuff like that, or they're going to all converge on one single point and you're going to get a big bang. Now, in 1931, astronomer Arthur Eddington pointed out that because a large fluctuation is exponentially less probable than a small fluctuation, observers in a Boltzmann universe will be vastly outnumbered by um, observers in smaller fluctuations. So what he's trying to say is that what are the chances of all particles converging on one point and creating a big bang? It's small because that involves all particles. But what happens if 50 million particles instead of 50 gazillion particles could converge to create a brain and the brain is your brain and it's got it's got memories installed it's hmm. got sort of thoughts and it just exists for a glimmer of a second and it thinks that you're recording a podcast with two people uh, one in Israel one in Australia but really <laughs> it's just popped out out of the void it's just particles coming out of nowhere so that seems more um, statistically probable than actually having a big bang huh. and and physicists still argue about this um, there's like there's probably two types of arguments which is one is even if it were true then in a second it won't matter so it, it shouldn't affect you anyway but if it regardless if it's true or not we should still be working on physics it, we should assume that it's not because that would just assume an endpoint for physics right that when you publish your paper there's no one actually hearing it there's no one like actually reading it because you're just a Boltzmann brain but most physicists say that there's no point because well th this gets tricky right because they say well it's better just for physics that no one assumes this because then <laughs> we can continue our work right but if it was true then that wouldn't even matter so wrap your brain around that that's oh, that's really interesting I'm sorry that I don't have anything smart to say about this it's that's really okay <laughs> it would be easier to create one brain than a planet and it would be easier to create a planet than a Big Bang. So it's just a statistical probability. Yeah, it's almost infinitely more probable that, you know, a bunch of particles will emerge into one brain. Appearing out of the void. Yeah, than a Big Bang. And it's interesting because a Big Bang occurred. <laughs> or you have a memory that people think it occurred. <laughs> Does it mean that particles were just there out of nowhere? Like, you start by assuming that there are particles in, in this random universe? Random particles in a random universe? I think we have to assume there's particles, yes. Yeah. So, the next thought experiment, the final thought experiment. Now, this one's an easy one, actually, and I think this one, hopefully, you guys will be able to answer because a lot of these are sort of just, you don't know what to say. Yeah, these are really interesting, and they're blowing my mind here, but I wish I had something smart to say about them. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's that's the thing with thought experiment. Like, most of them don't don't really have an answer. They're just like, you know, the starting point for a discussion. Yeah, exactly. They just make yes. you kind of see things from a perspective you didn't think about. Yeah. Except for the purposes of this one, this one has an answer. Hopefully you get it right. <laughs> this one's a yes or no, so I'll ask you guys. Right. Imagine scientists have come up with an amazing new technology called the experience machine. 
probably made by Amazon. It <laughs> works like this. You go into a lab and sit down with the staff and talk to them about everything you've ever wanted to do in your life. You describe your perfect, most ideal, most pleasurable, most joyous, most satisfying possible life. Then they induce you into a coma that you'll never emerge from. They put your unconscious body into a tank of fluid in a pitch black room and cover your head with electrodes. Once you're in a tank, the simulation begins. You'll experience everything you said you'd dreamed of for the duration of your life or what can feel like a lot longer if you if you want. And you'll have no memory of going into the experience machine and also you'll have no knowledge that your world is only a simulation. You'll experience your perfect life in its entirety exactly as if it really happened. So your qualia will be as if it really happened. Nice. But in reality, none of it is real and you're just floating in a vat of fluid in a pitch black room. And you'll never again wake to experience the actual world or interact with actual people. But of course you won't know that and you'll feel like you did. So the question is, if the experience machine were available to you and guaranteed to work flawlessly, would you do it? And you'll eventually die as you would. Yeah, but you could you could experience a long life, like five. Yeah. You could experience a thousand years, I guess, if you, or longer. But it's a really interesting question because, like, the way I see it, you know, when we're talking about like what's the meaning of life, mm. I I always like the fact that. I don't think there is meaning, you know, like we're here because of probability. Like this is how the universe evolved and we're here and we're not here because we're supposed to be happy and we're not here because we're supposed to fulfill ourselves to make something out of ourselves. And we're not here because of anything like yeah. life just is. And there, there is happiness and there is sadness and there is everything in the middle. And when I think about it, I think it's beautiful. But you're giving me a chance to live a life that's different. Live a life that is about being happy, being perfectly happy. This is a real good question. Um, this one is by Robert Nozick. And he made this thought experiment to refute ethical hedonism. So hedonism, if you're like a hedonist or ethical hedonist, I guess, is just the most ethical thing you could do for someone else would just be to give them the most happiness possible. And the thing you should want is to be just for human pleasure and happiness, basically. I call it happiness. Some people call it well-being. There's a lot of fights about it. So the goal and only goal should be to maximize pleasure. So these other things such as love for or intrinsic value in like scientific pursuit or pain after a breakup that a lot of people go through or more complex emotions like the bond you have with someone after going to war or um, the relationship you have with a child or something. He thinks there's more important things than just pleasure. So people will not go into this. But my take is that there isn't and you should go into it. I I would <laughs> I I totally disagree. Like and, and the thing is a lot of people disagree with this and it's sort of backfired a little bit because I would say probably fifty percent of people would just say yeah, I would totally do that. There's like the issue of like, if everyone got in, then one person would have to like control all the stuff. But for the purposes of this experiment, you don't really have to think matter. about it. Yeah. But all, all of just, for instance, all of your family and friends can do it as well. So it's not like you're leaving anyone else out 
of the picture. Although that doesn't really come into the thought experiment, I guess. But for me, to have everything that you could possibly want and be as pleasurable as you want, I think that would be the way to go because I I just, I, I feel like everything you do, like for instance, like the grind or like the hustle you have to do to create a successful brand or something and then become happy about it and stuff. I don't understand what the point of that grind would be if you could just accelerate to being happy. And if someone said, well, if you don't have the grind, then you won't actually get the happiness at the end. Well, that doesn't matter because this experiment just will ignore that. You'll get the happiness no matter what. So, yeah. It's um, a perfect machine. It's a perfect scenario. It is a perfect machine. And I feel like I could understand someone who said, no, I have attachments here. Like I, you know, I build up so many things in life. Like I've got a job that I'm about to excel in. If you just give me another month, I'll get to that promotion. But I feel like those objections are are a result of someone not fully grasping what the machine is because you would get that raise in a second and you wouldn't feel sadness that it's not actually in your real life because it would be indistinguishable from your real life anyway. I just feel like it's like an unrefutable yes. And the reason I say that is because if you went into the machine and someone said, hey, by the way, I think, think you might be in a machine, mate. And there's actually like a real world outside. Like if we could prank or go on like a TV show with like fake cameras and say that to like whoever the happiest person alive is, maybe Dan Bilzerian, and say, oh, hey, by the way, um, you're actually an insurance broker in this other world and you've got like an ex-wife, you're paying alimony and stuff like that. But hey, um, this whole thing that you're doing on all those sail ships and cruise ships and all the hookers and stuff, like that doesn't exist. <laughs> so if you were... You know, if you just want to get back to your insurance thing, you're happy with that? Yep. And he says, no, <laughs> I feel like you would have to say no to that. And like, I just, I just think if, if you, if you would unrefutably say no, when you go into it, then you should say yes to go into it. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, if it's perfect, then yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. You know, it bring it brings to mind a couple of thoughts. I guess like the first thing that you kind of think about is the matrix. Yeah. Right. Because like you have, you have a world, but I think I have a, a better example for that. There's a movie very similar to The Matrix. I think it actually went a couple of years before that. I don't remember exactly the name of it, but it's in a pretty similar concept. You know, someone is living this in this perfect world, and he feel he or she I don't remember who the protagonist is, um, but they feel like that something is wrong, and they get these flashbacks that this isn't the real world. It's actually a projection on, on top of this really post-apocalyptic world. And that's like very similar to the Matrix, right? They, they kind of go out of the Matrix. They find out that there's this whole resistance and they want to destroy, uh, you know, transmitters in order to make everyone see real life. And eventually, when they do succeed in breaking those transmitters, they realize that it's even not a post-apocalyptic world. It's just like this really simple world that everyone everyone carries like these boxes with barcodes. And according to the barcode, you see what you want to see. Mm. And this whole concept of the post-apocalyptic world, it's also something that some people need. Some people do need to feel that they're, they're rebels. They are actually working hard in order to get the thing that they want and, and that it shouldn't come easily. Yeah. I think in a way we kind of hold sacred the whole 
effort that we put into things that make us happy because we will just feel very sucky if we know that yeah. that we don't have to put this effort you need to have the feeling that you've worked for it yeah so we kind of give an additional value to it because it's you, you will go mad if if you won't give that effort some kind of additional value mm. it's seven o'clock in the morning it's a weekend and you're feeling like oh, i really don't want to go to the gym but you know what this is the grind and you decide to go you get there and you feel really good that you got out of bed. Like the struggle actually somehow made it better when you were there. If it was so effortless to go get out of bed, it actually wouldn't have felt as good, right? Now, apply that to your whole life, right? And they could program that into the machine. So you don't even need to have this feeling that you haven't even worked for the pleasure. You would have the exact calculated amount that would make you feel like you earned the pleasure because that would just be more pleasure. Yeah. Basically, now we put value into the effort because we don't have a choice. But you could even have the feeling of not having oh. a choice and overcome it. And it's then you could like have, yeah. So for instance, like any dead weight, like say for instance, there's like a certain amount of difficulty that would require you to sort of go through um, to get this like new value of like sort of overcoming adversity to do something right but if there's any extra difficulty that you don't need that's not going to produce any more sort of benefit at the end they, that's just like stripped off like like fat you know that's just dead weight for the calculation so you would only go through exactly what you'd need to go through to be able to get that everlasting sort of like feeling that you've accomplished something so yeah i like this machine please sign me up this one. <laughs> Yeah, I keep thinking about what if I, you know, tell the scientists, the people who operate the machine, exactly what I want, and then I go in there and I find out where well, I was you wrong. You don't want that. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe you're the the operator, and you for years you're accumulating ideas of like the perfect world yeah. because you keep hearing of them. Like <laughs> this know. is actually there's an interesting um, philosopher. His name's Peter Singer. I think he's Australian actually. He used to be what they called a preference utilitarianist. So. Basically, you have preferences, you know, to like get married and all these things. Like a lot of them are basic needs. A lot of them are more complex. You know, everyone has their sort of preferences of what they want to happen. You could just imagine it as a million different possible lives and they just rank them, right? Mm. And this isn't something you consciously do. This is something more under the surface. S say, for instance, someone said, so this isn't under the surface anymore, but they try to articulate exactly what they want their life to be and you give them that life and they're pretty happy, but like there's things that they probably could experience that were better than what they explained that they wanted, right? Mm. Now, he converted from that, which is a preference utilitarian, to a hedonistic utilitarian, which is basically, fuck your preferences. <laughs> You're going to have exactly what's going to make you have most... Um, pleasurable experiences right so that's kind of my stance as well so this one is sort of agnostic towards whether you would actually be able to make these things yourself but i would say like it'd just be scientists probing the pleasure center of your brain and then whatever happens in your brain is just whatever happens like whatever your brain does to sort of rationalize why you're feeling like that i imagine it would be sort of like a dream that you experience quite vividly yeah. and it's just them probing you it's just like a simple sort of like a an electrode just constantly going off and your brain just has to create 
the scenario itself. So in the same way that our brain creates narrative in the real world, where there's probably not one, like saying someone fits the profile for a crime because they just that's just what their brain has come to, then I feel like there'd be a same thing where because you're feeling really great about something, your brain would have to create sort of this whole story. I feel like that's preferable to then thinking you can be the one to like, because I just think people are mistaken about what they think they want. So. I totally agree. Okay, so that's all of them. Hopefully, it's I all reckon. an illusion, man. It's an illusion, <laughs> illusion father. <laughs> well, I got one more thing. Right? Have you heard about Elon Musk? How he's banging on about we're in a simulation. Not not from Elon Musk, but you know, there's the simulation theory. I think he's basically on that chain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, there's two things, right? We can we can either I don't totally agree with this, so I'm going to try to put in some zazz in it, but we will eventually create VR or whatever you want to call it. That's just so damn good that you just won't even know that you'd be in a simulation, right? And compared to the real world, you can make as many simulations as you want. Like it could be like a, just an open source Google doc where there's just a million of them. Right. And they say, Oh, look at this, look at this freaking weird one. Look at what <laughs> happens in 2020 in this simulation, like, bloody bushfire and then COVID <laughs> pandemic and Black Lives Matter protests, you know, like, holy shit, let's run that one. See what happens. Don't forget the murder hornets. <laughs> <sighs> um, look at the Redskins changing their name. Oh, well. Um, anyway, so just a bunch of crazy shit, right? So there's many more simulations that you can create than more universes, right? And Elon Musk is saying, well, what, what are the chances we're in the one universe? We're probably the damn little things in the simulation like to think we're in the real universe is mighty high of us you know because if there's a billion worlds to be in and you think you're in the one that's was made first and we haven't even got to the simulation bit that's a very low probability right now i want to add to that and say say this podcast goes viral right and everyone knows what the experience machine is and we create an experience machine, right? Amazon Prime, big machine, <laughs> you're getting it, right? But if everyone's in that, surely this isn't like, except for this podcast, of course, but surely my life is exactly what's going to make me the most pleasurable. Unless for some reason, this is just what the height of pleasure is. Like for some reason, like everything I'm doing in my life, like waking up at 7am for the gym is just the most pleasurable thing. But I kind of refuse to believe that just for my own, you know, mental health. So like if we have, if we can create simulations, surely we can create experience machines. And if I'm not feeling like I'm in absolute bullies, then surely there's something wrong. We, we probably aren't at the stage. Maybe we are in the, this is sort of like the reverse of the simulation theory. This is saying, well, if there is a world and there's a billion experiences that you can have because they're all in experience machines, and you're born into this world which isn't blissful, if you assume it's a logical step to take for humanity to get in a, to build and get in an experience machine, maybe that's proof that you're in the original universe that hasn't made the machine yet. Well, actually, now I think about it, my experience machine add-on to the doesn't really make sense because if you think about it, if they're in control of the simulations, then it would probably be pretty boring just for them to make a simulation where everyone gets an experience machine. So, I mean, I I assume there'd be like an altruistic movement or something where they say, well, you should make this, but it would be more interesting to have like, oh, what happens if we had this weird country, right? 
it was just ruled by one person and no one could go in and out. And we'll call it something like Korea, like a North Korea or something. <laughs> and that would be like awesome, you know, like I, I it's looking more and more like a simulation. <laughs> you know the reality is is beyond imagination right it's like the best story that you could you could have the more you think about life the more you think about it would be pretty funny to make a simulation of it yeah it's like uh, when comedians ran out of jokes once donald trump got elected <laughs> So, Cowboy Bebop is an anime sci-fi western that follows the crew of the Bebop, which in the first episode is made up of Jet and Spike, but after a while they pick up Ayn, Faye, and Ed. It takes place in the year 2071, and it's set in the inner solar system. The show was created by Shinichiro Watanabe under Sunrise Studio and first aired in 1997. It's considered to be the show that made anime accessible in the West, and it takes inspiration from a lot of Western movies, a lot of Western music, and it mixes them up in kind of unexpected ways. In this universe, to keep the, the, the peace in the inner solar system, the inner solar system police, or the ISSP, are offering bounties for wanted criminals, and the crew of the Bebop are bounty hunters, or cowboys. Uh, that's the name of bounty hunters in this universe. In most of the 26 episodes of the show, the crew is trying to capture a bounty, and more often than not, the bounty either gets away or dies in the process, so the crew stays poor and hungry. The heroes of the show are kind of losers, uh, in a way. And uh, whenever they're not chasing a bounty, well, they, they don't have anything to do, really. Like, they're seen floating around in space aimlessly and bored to death. And the episodes are filled with all kinds of philosophical ideas and themes, and every once in a while we'll learn more about the past of each of the characters. And it feels that, you know, little by little, each of the characters uh, becomes deeper. So I'm really interested to know, what are your general thoughts? How, how did you experience this? And also, I'd, I'd really like to know, like, how you experienced this. Because did you guys watch the, the Japanese version with uh, subs, or did you get the dubbed version? So I actually watched some in English, some in Japanese with the subtitles. Really? Yeah. I have a computer next to my TV and the couch is like on the other side. So when <laughs> I put uh, when I put an episode, it kind of like, because the default track was, was the English one. So I not always had the notion of, of, uh, <laughs> of, of actually changing the track. To, to the Japanese yeah, it one. It takes I, a lot of motivation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hard times. Especially because I pretty much ended watching this series a couple of hours before we started recording because I had a busy couple of weeks. So I just binged most of the series since yesterday afternoon. I understand the appeal of, of uh, you know, the original Japanese um, track, but I, I enjoy the English one. I mean, I, I understand also... You know, making it accessible to the West, definitely. Like, um, maybe that's why I enjoyed the, the English track, because it was easier to ingest, you know? Yeah. And how did you like the show? I loved it. I got to say that I, I think it's awesome. I understand all the good things that I heard throughout the years. I totally understand the appeal. You know, not only that the characters are super cool and, and everything just got this awesome vibe, 
and each episode is very different you know I don't think there are two episodes that that I can put like in exactly the same vibe or notion so that was very fun like every episode is is a new thing and of course you know the music the music was just the soundtrack was just awesome amazing yeah yeah the music in the fighting scene or even the casual vibes and and you know sometimes the English tracks and just awesome I I binged the show probably not as hard as Barrio but it's still pretty hard I think I watched the first two um, episodes with the Japanese um, and the English subtitles and then I switched from then on and stuck with the um, the English um, overdub which was really good actually sometimes when you get an English overdub it's sort of a bit basic but this one was really awesome actually they put a lot of effort into it so yeah I ended up watching probably the last 22 episodes in this last week so was like watching like five or six episodes a day I've got to say, I really enjoyed it, and I can understand the appeal. I can understand why Westerners will like it. I'm not sure if Japanese people will like it as much, because it is very Western. And as Barrio said, it's it's got such diversity in the episodes. My favorite ones were by far the ones that either worked with one specific character, like um, Spike's backstory, or um, Faye's sort of past, um, yeah. Jet's. Spike and Faye probably had the most backstory or the most in- fleshed out. I think I, I connected a little bit less with Ed and Ayn. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't mention it in the intro, but Ayn is a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I connected a little bit less with Ed um, compared to the other characters. But yeah, I think I could pick out probably 10 episodes, which I absolutely loved. And there's so many different reasons why I liked them, but as um, Barry was saying, like some of the some of the ways they ended the episodes with like a long fighting scene when there was music, it was emotional. It was it was, and when I mean emotional, I don't mean like crying or anything. I just mean like really just engaged and like on the edge of my seat yeah. and just I, I was just amazed at some some of the fighting scenes, the pairing with the music mostly, and uh, yeah, I, I would say I. Definitely in the like category. I, I I really liked it. Cool. I watched like two episodes a day fairly consistently. It like became kind of part of my routine. And I watched it in Japanese with the subtitles, English subtitles. Because like I haven't watched a lot of animes in my life or any at all. But I keep hearing the, the sentence subs over dubs. <laughs> because like people always prefer the, the original language and just add subs to it. So I finished the 26 episodes watching it in Japanese and then I started watching stuff on YouTube and what other people think about the show. And the English dub is considered to be a very, very good one. Like, um, because they did put a lot of work into it. They really stuck to the original. So I did go back and watch watched a few episodes in English. And to me, I don't know, I, I like the Japanese better, but it might have been because I got used to it. And then later I, I got into the... Cowboy Bebop Discord server, and a lot of people there do prefer the English version. But so a few minutes after I finished the last episode, I sent this text to my girlfriend. I wrote, I think it's a really interesting show. Uh, The moral of the stories and the philosophy that is in the episodes is really kind of subtle. So if you rush through it, kind of watching episode after episode after episode, then I can see why it might feel a bit empty. But I feel like there's a lot more left to say. And you know, then I thought about it and I had to admit that like I kind of rushed through the show 
which I regret a bit. Like, I, I think that a lot of the episodes end with this kind of somber tone. And instead of taking the time to enjoy it, I sometimes just jumped back in and watched another episode. I kind of wish I watched, you know, just one episode and then let it sink in and then watched another episode and let it sink in. Uh, later that day, I started my, you know, kind of research about the show and it might be funny, but my enjoyment from the show on a scale from one to 10 was always between five and six. The last three episodes, I really loved them. On the scale, it would be somewhere around eight or nine. And then reading and, you know, watching stuff about the show after the show to me was around 10. And now I can't wait to go back and, and watch all of it again because it's part of me now. <laughs> and I keep listening to the soundtrack and I keep reading about it and I keep thinking about it. And it's, I, I just loved it. And something about it is really subtle, you know? Like it's it's always, I don't know, underground, the things that goes on with this show. Because like, like I said, Peter, Ed wasn't my favorite character, you know? It wasn't that Ed... Ed to me, was a fun character. It was enjoyable. It was kind of the comic relief, maybe, sometimes. So I didn't connect to her too much. But the episode where she left at the end, I was almost crying. Like, mm. literally, I was I was so sad when it happened. And, and that was in, in episode 24 out of 26. And then when she left and I realized how much of an impact that had on me, I was just in it. Just to break it down a little bit more... I thought the first probably eight or nine episodes, I didn't really feel connected to it that much. I I didn't really have high hopes for it, to be honest. Um, but then I got to episode 10, which was, I think it's pronounced Ganymede um, Elegy. Ganymede right? Elegy, I think. Elegy, sorry. Um, it was the one with um, Jet and his ex-girlfriend, Alyssa. And uh, that one was like the first one for me that felt like really... I guess they were character-driven before that, but that was the first one that really hit home for me. Mm. And then my favorite episode, Toys in the Attic, um, was the next one, which reminded me of one of the Firefly episodes. It reminded <laughs> me a little bit about the um, the one where they're running out of oxygen. <laughs> Is that the one with the fridge? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the one with the fridge. Really good And then the, after that, Jupiter Jazz was two parts. And yeah, just from then onwards, I just, I went from not liking it too much. Like I didn't have, I didn't dislike it, but I just didn't like it. I was sort of just, just non-committal about the whole thing. Um, yeah. So from 10, I just really start to enjoy it again. And then around sort of 16, it started, starts to become a little bit more toned down again for me. Um, yeah, but 16 through to sort of, um, 20, I, I was sort of, I was sort of coming back to the stage where I wasn't all that pumped about it, but I knew cause I had five or six episodes there where I really loved it. So I knew yeah. there was something to it. And then I got to 20 or 21 again, and then it sort of started to pick up again and it ended really strong. So this is one where I wish, cause I would say maybe 70% of episodes were very much either to do with the main plot, which is obviously Spike and Julia and yeah. uh, the syndicate, or they were Faye or Jet episodes, you know, and even Edward episodes. Edward has some good stuff towards yep. the end, right? <laughs> but then there's a few episodes in there. So like the one with the, um, the, the chess master or like maybe the first three episodes the at the casino there's just a few which are just a little bit too general for me like they're, they're good episodes and i know there's deep stuff going in there that is going to set up for later episodes mm. but you take those episodes out and it's like a flawless season for me 
when they go really well, like when there's a good episode, they, they start strong, they end strong. I, I just love it. It's like a 10 out of 10. But then when it doesn't hit, it just feels like I feel a little bit empty. Yeah, I hear what you say. And I think the difference that kind of affected me is that I think I, I, I'm not sure exactly from where, but I kind of knew that it's going to be very noir. And, you know, things that are noir don't really have like this really solid point. They're, they're most about, you know, the, the feelings. Feeling, the, the experience. The, 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 the atmosphere. Yeah, the experience. The qualia, if you want, <laughs> that, yeah, the qualia that you get in the process. And again, from from my experience from noir, there's not a great lesson to be learned at the end of the episode, and there's not a lot of of a character arc. Like usually, the characters are in the beginning are pretty much as they're gonna be at the end, and and you're kind of like joining along for this specific journey, and and then it all goes back pretty much to normal. So. Once I knew that, I really enjoyed it because that's the thing I put my focus on. I I try to put my, you know, my attention on on the on the camera angles because there's so many artistic angles, not necessarily things that that actually uh, put something in in the plot or or you know push something forward, but they're just like very nuanced and they help build this certain mood. So I think that was done brilliantly. And I think that that once you take this and you don't expect you, you don't expect some kind of to learn something from it or, or to get this this uh, growth out of it, then you can really enjoy the journey. I think like if I look at all the four characters, the one that actually has some kind of, of a personal growth is just Faye. And even that, it's just very insignificant. Like she realizes uh, her past, right? And and um, and the, and she realizes that she doesn't really have a, a place that she belongs. You know, there's this uh, um, very sad scene where she finally understands where where she it, she does belong, and she goes back, and her whole house is destroyed. In ruins. Yeah. yeah. And she and she draws in the sand. Uh, the place where her bed was, and there she kind of rests before she goes back to the to the bebop. Yeah, but I think but, she learns that she now maybe doesn't have has a, a place, place to belong, but she can move forward and maybe try to belong in the bebop because she's really sad when Spike leaves in the last episode. She she's broken by it. I think yeah, that's her I growth. Think, I think yeah, but but it's a very minor one and also like very next to the end and the thing that kind of echoed with me is that what i get from the entire tv show is that that's like mature life you know it doesn't really go anywhere i don't know i I like that it really resonated with me i was just gonna say like when she actually just gets a stick and draws out where her bed is like i don't know i it was really sad but it felt like she was just trying to say like this is where she belongs you know yeah, her whole story is is really sad, actually, and I don't know why, but it this happens a lot in TV shows where the main character has a very sad story, but then there's a sub character which comes off very sort of superficial. She's very like aesthetically, she's just sort of she doesn't seem like she has much of a deeper level, and it's just when she says to Spike that she's sorry that it all, that's all it took for her to reveal that there's more going on to yeah. that spike at least yeah so like when i first 
saw her character, uh, rightfully so, I just thought she's just not really important. She's just a just a bit of a side person, you know, yeah. side character, no one to really um, think about. But she became probably my, my, probably my favorite character because she just was acting sort of out the conception that people had of her. So when people look at her, she was just sort of just playing the role. But um, when you look through all of her history, she's just much different. Yeah, totally agree. You know, there's a few kind of underlying themes that connect everything in the show, which I think the, the main ones are the inability to kind of move forward or run away from your past and the constant need or lack of something to be a part of, to belong to, and the feeling of loneliness. Uh, that's how I see it. Because, like, the four crew members of the Bop, uh, the, the Bebop are all dealing with their past to a certain extent. Like, Jet, maybe less so than the rest, because he gets answers, he gets closure about his past. But he has um, the whole story with uh, Elisa, which, you know, she's his love in life, and she just one day got up and left, and he doesn't know why. And Faye... Face story, which I agree with you, she kind of started like kind of a side character, but in the end she becomes almost the main character because her story mm. is big, it's wild, it's it's really sad. Like she woke up, she she basically, you know, she's from our time, she's from current time. She she was born, I don't know, maybe at the turn of the century, but because of an accident she was in, she was in this stasis and she wakes up in the future in kind of an unknown world she doesn't know where she comes from she doesn't know where she's supposed to go she doesn't know where she belongs and she has a huge amount of debt that she cannot pay she's lost she it's it's wild to me and spike probably the most complicated character you know he was part of um the red dragon syndicate and he wanted out and there's no way out and his past is dangerously catching up to him and there's ed and she, as a younger girl, she doesn't have a past to haunt her. She seems carefree, uh, mostly. You know, she has these big, beautiful orange eyes. She looks naive, but near the end, we learned that she's been abandoned by her father, and she's actually trying to find him. So, I, I don't know, like, at least with Jet, Faye, and Spike, their past is kind of weighing down on them. You know, it, it kind of feels like it won't let them move forward, and also, it won't let them make deeper connections with the people that are close to them. You know, it, it, it's kind of like there's a wall surrounding them and they don't talk about it almost at all. It's all subtle. And you see that they're stuck and they're bored and something's missing. And you see that they're kind of separated from each other because like, I know mostly Faye, she rarely uses the other characters' names. I think I might be wrong about that, but like, I I can't remember a lot of times where she used the other characters' names. And even in episode five, uh, 25, the one near the end, she calls Spike the guy with the fuzzy hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird. She, she keeps a distance between her and the others. And Spike, I think it was the last episode, he says that he lost an eye in an accident when he was still back with the Red Dragon Syndicate. And basically, that eye only sees the past. It's kind of shows you that he can't get away from from his past but through the episodes they're slowly becoming attached to each other even if they won't admit it in episode 24 when ed and ayn have left and Faye is missing because she's lying in that square she she drew in the ground pretending she's back at home spike and jet are forcing down all of the eggs that they've made uh, for the entire crew to it and they seem to be trying to ignore the fact that something they came to kind of rely upon is gone they seem to not want to talk about it 
Yeah, they're filling the void with eggs. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that happens exactly when Faye kind of learns that she has nowhere to belong to and Ayn and Ed are leaving and that was like a punch to the gut for me. Oof. <laughs> But anyway, this kind of maybe hit the hardest, I think, in the last scene on the bebop. In the last episode, where Jet made Spike something to eat after Julia died and, and Spike comes back to the spaceship. And they, you know, they're kind of subtly talking about what's going to happen now. And I think they both know that it's probably the last time they're going to see each other, probably the, their last moments together. And they're kind of, for the first time, admitting that they like each other. You know, moments earlier... Uh, Faye asks Jed if they're not going to go help Spike. And he says uh, it's his problem. He brought it upon himself because they always keep this distance between them. But th- here in this last scene together, Jed already kind of came to terms with his past uh, in a previous episode. And Spike lost the most important thing that connected him to his past, which is Julia. And he knows that it's all going to be over soon. And then for the first time, we see both Jed and Spike just laugh heartily. You know, as close friends, and they share a moment. And I think this is the the actual first time in the series where they actually are laughing out loud. You know, they that was they... such a creepy scene when they well, not a creepy <laughs> scene, but when they did that, kind of eerie. like sometimes when everything's going wrong, like you just laugh. yeah, I don't know. It's such a weird psychological fact, yeah. it's a laugh out of despair, yeah, yeah, I think up until then they were partners, maybe for a long time. I don't know. but, Then they, they, they were more than just partners. And, you know, then Spike leaves and what happens, happens. I don't know. I just really loved how the show explored these themes and how each character deals with their past and, and kind of is forced to grow because of it. Maybe Jet less so than the others because his story was basically over in a couple of episodes. But I really, really, it, it touched me. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really sure that Spike grew from his story. What do you think he drew? I think that throughout the series, he kind of knows that nothing can touch him other than vicious, his arch nemesis. He always seems to be kind of bored and uninterested unless it's uh, something that involves vicious or Julia, something from his past. And like he always wins in all these fights, even though he's kind of portrayed as this kind of loser throughout the the episodes, he's, He keeps saying that he kind of moves like water. He, he, he flows, but he seems so bored and uninterested. And as long as Vicious isn't involved, he knows he's going to win, so he's not interested in anything. But then, you know, when he goes to end this, when he lost Julia, suddenly he doesn't look that bored, you know? He, he smiles, he's laughing, he's interested, he's engaged. And he woke he... up from the, from the dream. Exactly. And there's nothing... left for him. like there's no more a past to run from that's the change in his life that's the growth I think he like you said he and he said he's not sure if he's in a dream and that's not the case anymore so there's two things I sort of wanted to talk a little bit about and I'm confused on both of them the first one is spike's eye he did have some sort of injury and probably lost his eye but I don't know if his other eye is actually sees the past or if it's just a metaphor what is his qualia <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was bothered by that for a while do you have an I, opinion on it i tend to think that it's just a metaphor even though there's a bit where we kind of see that it's maybe a mechanical eye maybe it's it's more than just a glass eye that you put in your eye i don't know 
Yeah, it looks too good to be just like a glass eye, yeah. you know? I don't know. Like, it's more symbolic that he always sees the past. So he's stuck there. And because of that, he doesn't really live the present, right? That's yeah. why he feels that everything is a dream. I just want to read a quote quick um, from the last episode. So this is from Spike. This is why I kind of question the eye, because it's just, I, I don't know. It, I feel like it could have some important role. So he says, I had thought that what I saw was not all of reality. I thought I was watching a dream that I would never awake from. Before I knew it, the dream was over. And then he tells Faye that he's not going to die, but he wants to see if he's alive. And when he, when Julia dies, it's focusing on in on his left eye, which is the one he says sees the past. So I feel like there's something there where he's seeing Julia in real life, but he's seeing the past. So... Like, there's some sort of reconciliation going on there where he can finally sort of admit that it's it's done, you know? Yeah, I read somewhere someone compared this part to something some philosopher said. I'm sorry, I don't have any more details, but that philosopher talked about how he had a dream in which he was sure he was someone else. And that dream was so vivid and it had so many details that... When he woke up from that dream, he wasn't sure if the real life wasn't a dream. You know, if yeah, the one with the butterfly, was... right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so I, I kind of thought that you know, he always sees the past and the present, and he doesn't know what is real. And by the fact that Julia is dead, now he knows. Now he's awake. Just turn the plug one eighty degrees is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, my second is well does spike actually die at the end i unequivocally would have said yes but apparently there's a debate about it so i must have missed something i don't know what's why it's a debate i, I keep seeing people talk about how they left the series in with an open ending but he's definitely dead i mean yeah okay uh, for three minutes uh, the, the the camera is panning upwards into the the you know first the sky then the atmosphere then outer space and I think a few times throughout the series, we see that a Native American kind of figure that tells us that everyone has a star when they're born, a star is born with them. And then when you die, that star falls, that star is extinguished. And oh, we, see, yeah. we see a star turn off, b- being extinguished. Yeah. I don't think it could be more absolute than that. You know, it's, it's just a fact that he died, isn't it? I thought so. Maybe it's Vicious Star. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they know they're not coming for another season, right? Definitely. So this is the second Cowboy in Space series we've watched, which only has one season. But the the, the clear difference is that they knew it was going to end yeah. that way. I read that Watanabe, Shinichiro Watanabe, the creator of the show, he had a clear ending planned from the beginning. Like, he didn't want the show to continue forever. Uh, Watanabe also said that the fact that they always knew where the story is going and where it would end, allow them to plan everything in advance, which I think is felt in the show because like like I think all of us said, the show mixes a lot of genres. Every episode is different, but I think it also kind of feels consistent. They Before they started like actually creating everything, the story of each episode was set. 
I love it. I think it's a great way to do things. I read that each um, episode was sort of, it was produced as if it was just a sole single story. Like it yeah. was its own short film. I think he also, Watanabe also said that one of his goals was to create something that adults can enjoy as well. Like not necessarily something for kids, you know, because at first the, the show was backed by a company, uh, Bandai. They just wanted something to make toys out of. And I think they also said that as long as there's a spaceship in it, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> But despite that message, they, they disagreed on the direction of the show. Watanabe wanted to create something that adults can enjoy, and Bandai just aimed for kids. You know, they wanted kids to, to be attracted mm. to it. And eventually Bandai dropped out, and for a while the show was left hanging. And after some time, a sister company of Bandai called Bandai Visual picked up the show, And they didn't have any plans for toys, and they actually let Watanabe do whatever he wanted. And he wanted to create something that w- would be remembered, he said, for at least three decades. And how long has it been? 23 years now. It, he probably made it. You know, today it's considered to be one of the most successful animes. It's often referred to as a gateway show. I, I think it's safe to say that he, he succeeded. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of wanted to focus on the music. Of the show because like, I think it's one of the most interesting aspects about the show right yeah I enjoyed the music I want to see if you guys sort of like felt the same but mm-hmm. you know like at the end where they they've just built up like the stakes and often like spike Fay and jet are in different places fighting different battles but they cross cut between them and there's just music going crazy and you Sometimes the music doesn't even fit the fight to be honest it's like I totally well, I didn't think it would fit the fight but it just works somehow yeah. and those are like it just gives you a rush of energy I've just never felt like I've had so much adrenaline in in those scenes and I'm trying to recall the episodes maybe yeah, I wish I could recall exactly the episodes that finish like I do but I know there was the there was one with um you maybe not the best example but the heavy metal queen yeah that was a that was a good one to end with and I know in the last episode um, which was the real folk blues part two that one ended with a crazy sort of music fighting scene no you're right the the, the music wasn't always something you'd expect to be they really mixed up the genres in kind of unexpected ways and I kind of I want to specifically talk about one person who Um, I don't know if you've read about her. Um, Yoko Kano. She was the music director of the show. Have you seen anything about her? Uh, I, no, her I did a quick Google of her, but I, I heard she was called Yoko. I thought that was funny. Yeah, but there's two really cool things about her, about Yoko Kano and how she influenced the show that I want to talk about. And the first is how she worked, uh, how her methods influenced the show because Kano brought together a few musicians and she formed a band called Yoko. seed belts which recorded almost all of the music that's in the show which I think is crazy I think it's wild because the music in the show features so many genres it has blues and jazz and all kinds of jazz and pop and rock and even heavy metal and it all sounds so different and it's wild to me to think that it was all played by the same band and mostly composed by one person but from what I've read, They started writing and recording music for the show in the very early stages of production. Like, they brought her and she started recording and writing even before all of the characters and stories were formed, you know? And Watanabe said that she often was independent in her work. Like, she recorded 
whatever music she wanted, without really thinking of what the show needed, she brought it over to Watanabe and she said, this is the song this show needs. You know, she actually just dropped it on them. And Watanabe said that sometimes he would take inspiration from the music that she created and make scenes based on that. Like she actually created the music mm. and then they'd create the story, like actual story points based on the music that she's created. And that inspired Kano further. She came up with more music and they said that a lot of the music that was used in the second half of the show was stuff that they didn't even plan for. Like they didn't even ask her to create and she would just keep writing and recording and writing and recording and that would actually influence the show. At one point she said she was surprised by how her music was used in the show, but she never thought it was used in, in a wrong way. Mm, cool. I think it's amazing. Uh, this makes me feel like she had like a huge part in what the show is. And here's the second thing that I think is really cool about her. She was the inspiration for the character of Ed. Really? Oh. Yeah. Ed is the only character, except Ayn the dog, that was inspired and based on someone from real life. Obviously, Ayn is just based on a corgi, but Ed is the only character that's movement and behavior and, and kind of antics is based, probably, probably in an exaggerated manner, but based on someone specific. And it was based on Yoko Kano. The charming character of Ed is based on someone real which already makes me happy to think that, you know, someone like that exists. But also, that person is the one responsible for all the awesome music in the show. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> That's awesome. Person like Ed. Imagine how much influence on the show that Yoko Kano had. And also, imagine how much fun it probably was to be a part of that band, you know, just recording all types of music and working with someone who I, I, I'm imagining she's extremely cool and fun to be around. <laughs> she probably is. Yeah. To just to have actual plot points based around just the music that you create is sort of special. I think. I totally agree. Peter, you said Faye ended up being your favorite character. Yes. I think, um, see, Spikes was interesting, but I'm always interested with Faye there's, there's this interesting concept where, like, I feel like people sort of act as if they're just playing their role, you know? So, for instance, if, you, if you're if you just a, an attractive person that's just come off, like, doing bounty hunting and stuff, and you see, like, a spaceship with, like, two guys that aren't interested in, in you and stuff, you sort of, you just have this personality where you're just very dismissive, you're not connecting with them, you're not honest, you're deceiving them a lot, you're untrustworthy. But I feel like she, I feel so bad for her because like, if you look back at her old video, she doesn't seem like that at all. So she's obviously just been forced into this situation. Yeah. And the problem is you get all the blame from acting like that as well. Like no one's, no one's acknowledging the past that she's been through until the very end. Yeah. So everyone's just giving her the full palette of their retribution of why they don't like her. And I just think it's unfortunate because, well, one, no one really chooses to be who they are. But not only that, but she was someone else. She comes out of this cryogenic state and then she's expected to be this normal person. But it's a, it's an unrealistic sort of expectation. But she still has to sort of hold up to it somehow. And it, it's interesting because on the surface, she's this very, very flaky person. But then when it comes to coming back for her friends, if they're in trouble or just coming back, not even because they're in trouble, just because she's lonely and she realizes she wants friends. 
she reveals slowly that she's more like her previous self than she really was. So it, it feels like the way she acted is more situational than what she, a true representation of what she really is. And I think my favorite episode for her was definitely episode 18, which was Speak Like a Child, which was where they first sort of introduce her, what would you call it? Her past. Or, yeah, she's basically just getting duped by this guy. And was it the one with the lawyer and like she's waking up and she's learning that she's in the future? No, that that's my funny Valentine. Oh, is it? Sorry, I might be getting yeah. mixed up. Yeah, sorry. My favorite from her was yeah. my funny Valentine was my favorite of hers because she's just getting duped before she can even like she she's so vulnerable. She's got basically no idea of the world she's in and she has to learn everything from scratch. And then what happens? She gets basically just scammed. This guy fakes his death and she gets all of his death. So, yeah, it's one of those ones that you said just ends in a very somber tone. Totally agree. I, I, I think, like, out of all the characters, she has... Her story is just heartbreaking. It's just so sad. Mm. Barrio, what was your favorite character? Well, I guess his character doesn't get too much depth. But I, I really liked uh, Jet. Really? Yeah, I don't know. There's something touching about him. You know, he's like big, but he's missing pieces. He's obviously very tough and capable, but it, he's not really... Definitely Spike is the muscle, <laughs> which is kind of surprising if you if you compare their figures. But unlike the muscle, like, you know, Jane's from Firefly, right? Yeah. He was sort of the muscle as well. But the difference is Jet is just super reliable. You know, like he's the one like trying to provide food and when people are getting angry, he's the like the voice of he's the calm voice of reason, you know? Like yeah. it, it's a different take on the muscle. Well that's but that's not not a muscle, right? That's like a definition of uh of yeah. some, something that is, that is a bit more uh, maternal maybe. Uh, like he, he brings everyone together. And I think that his story is also kind of touching because there, there are a couple of stories that are deep in, in their own way. But like you got two things. You got you got his thing with uh, with Alice or Alisa. Alisa. Yeah. That he, he got his heart broken. And like he used to be a cop. And I'm not sure if they actually say that, but it seems like he left the force because he understood that they're corrupted exactly and he also loses his hand there because his partner betrayed him yeah but he's not aware that his partner betrayed him until one of on no yeah exactly i don't know it kind of i i felt i felt for him i think i thought it was it was a really interesting story and, and i also liked yeah. that um you don't really get a lot of details regarding the relationship that he, he had with Alyssa until the very end where where he you realize they weren't in a good relationship to begin with. Like, she felt trapped. Yeah, she wasn't happy. Yeah, and you get, like, her side of the story, which makes it more interesting. Like, one of the things that I didn't really get regarding Spike's story is the whole thing with Julia. Like, what exactly happened there? He fell in love with her, she fell in love with him, but then Vicious made her kill him, and she didn't want to, so she just disappeared, something like that. In a way... Spike has um, one of the most superficial. He has one of the most broken. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Faye would have a claim on that. But I don't know. I feel like Faye had just such a deep story about sort of losing her memories and 
Jets was a bit more fragmented because he had the ISSP and he had his old girlfriend and he had sort of currently with the with the crew because he was probably the most in the present as yeah, well. Totally so he agree. had to actually, because it was his ship. Whereas Spike was, from one point of view, you could say it was a bit more on the surface because it was just a girlfriend, the syndicate, which is, it seems very cliche, doesn't it? But I guess his was more symbolic towards the end. I think Spike's story, like in a nutshell, in that syndicate he met Vicious and they became kind of friends. And then Vicious used to date Julia and she left him for Spike. And Spike decides to leave. He knows that there's no way to live and he decides to fake his death. And uh, Vicious tells Julia that either she goes to meet Spike where they made the arrangement to meet. In the graveyard, very efficient. (laughs) So either she kills Spike or Vicious will kill both of them. And she decides not to go. She decides to run as well. And then they both are kind of longing to meet each other and also to escape from their past, which I think they both don't believe is, is a possibility, really. Because they know Vicious. They know Vicious will do whatever it takes to kill them. And it wasn't clear that Spike even knew that Julia was alive for the whole time. That's true. That's true. I think he thought she was dead, actually. I'm not sure. The ending was very sad. I thought that they didn't actually get their sort of happy getaway. That was Definitely. so sad. And I felt very connected to Julia, even though she was only in one episode. I actually felt that I don't really know what's her deal exactly. Yeah, we don't know a lot about her. Yeah, she was definitely more of a symbol. Yeah. For some reason, like I, my favorite character throughout the series was also Jet. The reasons why I liked Jet was kind of the same reasons why I thought Zoe was my favorite character in Firefly. And that's because he was always so reliable. He was always ready to go and do what needs to be done. But he, when he was not in the middle of a chase after a bounty or not in the middle of taking care of the crew... He had his own personality. He had his own depth. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, it feels it's it's more relatable. You know, it's it's a it's more wholesome. Yeah, I like the guy who watches over the hero. Maybe. Yeah, because he he doesn't get the credit. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. But to maybe dethrone Jet from the final rankings, he ate an egg. Right. He ate half an egg, and then he ate another half of an egg, <laughs> and then he ate the same <laughs> half of the egg. Like, why start another egg, man? <laughs> because he's filling his uh, his void after being left he was again. Distracted. Yeah, and yeah. this time he, he just wanted to bite it. Yeah, and he this time he didn't give it. He egg. didn't even get a note. They just left, and he was left with Spike. Uh, they they did leave a, a graffitied bye bye and a smile. No, that doesn't count. <laughs> no, the egg the egg point is very deep. Actually, now I recognize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you guys. I, I'm assuming you guys have both not watched the Cowboy Bebop movie. No. No, I probably will, though. Yeah, me too. Uh, although I, I haven't heard anything about it, so I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm actually am waiting for my girlfriend to finish the, the series, and then we'll watch it together. I really I can't wait to get some more Cowboy Bebop. And about that, I kind of I went on the show's Discord server and talked with someone there. Um, their 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 username was Strawberry Jamila, <laughs> and they said that the movie is really really worth a watch. They said that to them at least it might be even better than the show. They said that the movie had amazing visuals, amazing voice acting, and also, which I think is the most interesting part, you get to see 
a different side of Spike's character. Mm. Um, so I, I think mm. it's really interesting. I can't wait to get my hands on that and give it a watch. Can't wait to get my eyes on that. One more thing that they said, which is just another interesting trivia tidbit, is that the voice actors who do Spike and Julia in the English version are actually engaged. Aw, really? Ah. (laughs) Yep. So cute. I think it's cute. Method (laughs) acting. Okay, so um, this one was 26 episodes of 20 minutes. Now, that's a little bit of time, obviously, but it helps that it's one season. So I'm I'm obviously going to take it from the economic standpoint about cost benefit here but (laughs) i would say 10 episodes are probably non-negotiable five out of five stars for me then there's probably another 10 episodes which are probably four out of five stars and then the remaining six there are sort of probably not even threes they probably go down a little bit further because they didn't really intrigue me much so they'd probably be like two and a half stars so overall it's i think it's probably um worth your time to have a have a watch but the thing it makes it good as well is that it's because it's so westernized for us western folk it's <laughs> um it does feel a little bit easier to <laughs> a bit easier to sort of connect with and for a 1998 production because it's animated obviously the the it still holds up like better than most things from the 90s and yeah, the voice acting is really good for English, which is really good. So I, I love it. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I think it's important to, again, come to this in, in the realization that each episode exists in itself. And it's got these really subtle qualities of especially film noir, but, but also uh, with Western motives. So I think, I think it's, um, it's a very special way to get into anime in general so i'll just start by saying that i like i can agree with peter that not all the episodes were just perfect but to me all all of the episodes kind of help in in building up towards the last three episodes which are just worth it i thought were amazing and and after finishing cowboy bebop i felt the the thing that i was hoping for when we started this podcast i you know, I was happy that I watched something that I probably wouldn't watch if it wasn't for the podcast, something that required motivation to watch, but that I knew I would eventually be happy if I watched it. And that's exactly how it was. Like at first, I was making myself watch it. By the middle, it became part of my daily routine. And by the end, I was so sad that it was over. I totally agree. This is such a good example of something that like, if someone told me to watch it, in fact, someone did tell me to watch it um, a little while back. I saw him today, actually. So, it was, he was he was <laughs> impressed. He was like, wow, you actually saw it. So, um, that's, yeah. That's so I cool. Mean, it was for a podcast. I had a gun to my head. But um, <laughs> the, point, the point is, the point is, if someone told me to watch it and I was feeling just very open to suggestion... Um, that day, I might have actually put it on and I might have actually watched maybe three episodes, make it an round hour, and I probably wouldn't have picked it up again, to be honest. I I would have probably watched them, liked them, yeah. and then yeah. said, no, okay, cool. That's that's probably me done. Yep. I gave it a try and that's it. I'm, I'm, I really needed that extra yeah. motivation. So, watch. I had to grind through the first six or seven episodes. And then before you know it, you're you're at to number ten, Ganymede Elegy, 
then it just becomes like much easier to watch, much more um, interesting from episode to episode. And by the end, then you're like, well, this is this sucks. <laughs> it's over again. So it it it's weird. It's um, it was a bit of a drag, but then yeah. it just gets so good. So it's it's hard to evaluate it. It's not like an even series for me. Yeah. To add to that, to add to the fact that it's something that I'm, after the fact, really happy that I watched and really happy that I found that extra motivation to watch, it has the added value of being something that's so fun to analyze later, to watch stuff on YouTube, to read reviews, to, to dive deeper into. And it became something that kept me interested for, what is it, like a week now. And I... I'm just waiting to get more out of. You know, I want to watch the movie. I want to read more. I want two days from now. It's relevant now. It won't be relevant when this episode is out. But mm. on the Discord server, there's going to be a trivia night. And they're going to do 26 trivia questions about the show. And I know that I'm not going to be good at that or anything. But I, I'm waiting to see it happen just for the fun. I, I, I really like this. This really ended up being just a great experience. I, I, I feel like I've added to my pool of knowledge a, a yeah. charming TV show and a bunch of interesting things to read and watch. That's awesome. Would you say this has a cult following? I think so. Yeah. I, I would say so, yeah. Yeah, also also from my perspective, perspective, you know, I, I kept hearing things about it from different, definitely, like, even, by the way, even more than Firefly, I think. Mm. This definitely still goes in the category of, like, nice to brag about that you've seen it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. This gets a lot of culture points for that. Part of the perks. So, as we do at the end of each step of our quest, we're going to take a vote that will decide whether or not Cowboy Bebop has a place in the Culture Quest Essentials Guide. We will each have a chance to persuade each other and state our case for or against Cowboy Bebop's induction to the Queg, and then we will vote with a gentlemanly tip of the hat for Ye or an ominous stroke of the beard for Nay. And the vote must be unanimous in order to pass. My esteemed friends, let's have a vote. Wait, wait, wait. Stroke of the beard or stroke of the mustache? It's I guess important. you could do both. But it, uh, I'm say? not sure it's, it's <laughs> ominous enough. We haven't said this before. Oh yeah, I did write beard. But w we have a logo at the moment. Might be changed in the future. But at the moment, we have a logo of three sort of heads. Now, the one without the mustache, that's me. Yeah. So... Because I don't, I don't have a mustache, and I can't really grow one. When, when I mean I can't really grow one, I mean I just can't grow one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think in the original version, that guy also had a mustache, yeah, and, I, and said, I removed it. Well, this is uh, unfortunately <laughs> I can't proceed under these terms, and so we took off the mustache <laughs> and we added a monocle because monocles. Oh no, I think it yep. had the monocle, but monocles are kind of unique. <laughs> so very cultured. Okay, so who wants to state their cases first? I don't want to. I think Peter is going to be the problematic uh, one again, you know. I am always the problem. <laughs> I am the um, bottleneck in this queg. Yeah, I looked at the numbers. I think like I tipped my hat so many times that it's I I'm just going to leave it tipped <laughs> to the side from now on. <laughs> and <laughs> I think you just it's not that you can't grow a mustache. I think you've stroked it ominously too many times and it just won't grow anymore. <laughs> it was just dead straight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind going first. Go ahead. Uh, so I I I think we'll agree that it's kind of a hard decision. I think that this show yeah. is a possible gateway not only to anime but also to a bunch of different musical genres <laughs> that are presented in this show and a bunch of different 
movie genres that, that this show takes inspiration from. And it can help open your mind to new things. Like you might watch this and realize that you're into something that you've never even considered before. And it'll open a new world for you. And I, I, I like that. On the other hand, it might be a bit subtle and go over a lot of heads. I didn't get most of the brilliance of the show on my own. So I can see why people might think this is a bit boring. You know, despite the cool fighting scenes, despite the cool uh, music and everything. So I, I might have a leaning in this vote, but I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I'll go next. Um, I think exactly because the things of, that you mentioned, uh, because it can open you up to a lot of new things. It's experiences. It's pretty awesome, I guess. I mean, I guess if you're more into the action kind of type, then you're not necessarily gonna going to enjoy it but I think there are a lot of things in our in our guide that will probably fall in the same definition like if you're after the explosions and and you know the pure action then this culture guide is not for you and I think the price that you need to pay in order to get your horizons broaden in in that way is really small because each episode is so self-contained and there's so much to get from, and you don't even have to dive too deep in order to get it from. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it gives the, the possibility to kind of explore and find out uh, how, how rich it really is. But even when taking only what's on the surface, it's so enjoyable, and I think it's good. So looking at the series as a whole, or the season as a whole, <laughs> each session... Come on, guys. We're so uncultured. They're sessions, not episodes. <laughs> we'll just edit every time they say it. Um, anyway, each session was just um, right, really good, really self-contained. And um, like the only thing that lets me down maybe is like, I don't even think inconsistency is the right word because the music is so consistent. The art is so consistent. And the voice acting is so consistent. It's just sometimes the, the the level of importance of some of the episodes, like they differ in sort of how important they are to the overall plot or to the characters. So there's definitely some filler episodes there. But I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with filler episodes, you know? Like they can be good fun. And if you so, sort of slow down, obviously, because we're making a podcast, so we had about three weeks and uh, two of us didn't use the full three weeks. Um, we just, we we sort of like watched one, thought about it for a couple of seconds, and we were like, okay, let's chuck the next one on. And it was kind of enjoyable as well, because towards the end, like I probably would have binged it regardless if I had a deadline or not. But it, I think it definitely benefits from watching just one episode at a time and then watching the um, the two-parters together. So, yeah, I I feel pretty torn. I'm leaning one way. But as you said, you gotta you got to factor in the gateway drug aspect, you know? This is like, this could be the first thing you watch before watching 10 other animes, you know? And um, being such a westernized thing, you know, we're, we're sort of westernized, so we kind of lean towards it as well. It's a good, it's a good thing to start out with. And then you can go into some of the more niche sort of aspects so yeah i am i am pretty torn but it feels pretty rich with culture you know definitely um barry do you want to vote first um a tip of the hat from my side 
tip of the hand from Barrio. Um, Peter, do you mind if I go next? Sure. I am, as the positive guy here, I'm also going to give this a tip of my hat, which I'll, I try to be rough on this show, maybe lean the other side, because I'm, I'm getting to a point where my tip of the hats are being devalued, I think. <laughs> Uh, I'm easy, I guess. I'm a positive guy, I guess. Um, Yeah, a tip of the hat for me. So it all comes down to Peter again. Here we are, guys. Mr. Negative Nancy. Okay. Well, I'm I'm just going to throw it out there and say the bit I'm uncertain of is can we give this recommendation out to broadly everyone? Um, Considering this isn't just a collation of things that are popular and it's things that we all really like do you do do you guys really feel like this is something you recommend to like your own friends this is something that i can recommend to a lot of people and then you know when they are maybe skeptical about it i can totally see myself going hey trust me with this one yeah you know i am going to tip my hat i think We did it, guys. We did it. Open the champagne. <laughs> I was I was coming in negative, um, which is understandable. It's understandable, but I think the reason why I was coming in negative for the Quag and and positive actually just for the for the season was because I was thinking if someone looks at the Quag and they they watch the first episode and they're not hooked, then is that a failure of the Quag? And I don't think it is. I think. If you watch all the episodes, you'll it's going to be a net benefit for you. I think I think you're going to like it. I don't think it. anyone would regret it. I don't think anyone's going to regret watching the the whole thing. And we're not recommending you watch one episode. We're recommending you watch all the episodes. Well said. I'm totally behind that. So for our next episode, we'll steer away from our screens for a bit because. We've now done four straight episodes of movies or TV shows. It's time to do something a little different. And that in mind, I told you guys a couple of days ago that I had an album and a book that I was thinking of bringing up, stuff that like I was skipping in my back pocket for a while. But then I thought about a comic book that I wanted to do. And thinking about it, about doing it for the podcast, got me really excited. So for our next episode, we are reading The Transformers, Last Stand of the Wreckers, a five-book series from 2010 by Nick Roche and James Roberts. And I have to say, I never thought I'd be reading a Transformers comic book. When I was like (laughs) three or four, like in the early 90s, I was a huge fan of the TV show the Transformers had, but I don't remember anything from the show. And I haven't watched any of the movies or anything Transformers related since then. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I always kind of thought that Transformers are kind of dumb. Yeah. You haven't watched the movies? None of them. Oh, they're no, terrible. I they're think s- I think the first horrible. one's okay, but I think everyone else is bad. I haven't watched any of the movies, but I used to have a picture of Megan Fox from the first movie <laughs> as my computer background for a couple of years there when I was purely research. Yeah, yeah. I really liked the car she was standing over. Mm. Couldn't crop, <laughs> couldn't crop those things out. Couldn't. Yeah, you know. 
I tried. I zoomed in there. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> a while back, I listened to an episode of the um, I Understood the Reference podcast. And in one of their earlier episodes, I don't remember which one exactly, but I'll find out which episode that was and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. They discussed this this series of Transformer, Transformers comics. It's a tough word to say, Transformers. And Russ, one of the hosts of the show said that it's really kind of dark and mature, and he really praised it, and it made me really kind of excited. And I read a bit about the history of the Transformers comics, because I honestly don't know anything about this. And uh, just to give a bit of context, the Transformers comics used to be a Marvel thing. Um, they ended somewhere in the 90s, and they ended with this Autobot Decepticon war, which are words... <laughs> I never thought I'd say. Uh, and then Dreamwave picked up the comics for a while. They didn't do too well, and they went bankrupt. And then IDW picked them up and started a reboot version that takes place, I think, after that Autobot Decepticon war. And IDW's run, as far as I can tell, is more mature and more dark and, well, successful. <laughs> People seem to really like it. And... The books, the series we're going to read is one of the earlier series done by IDW. And as far as I've read, people really like it. People consider it to be standalone kind of thing. Like you should be able to enjoy it, even if you're kind of new to the Transformers. That's good. And last end of the records, the name of the series is, as you can tell, about the records, which like as far as I've read, they're a group of Autobots, which I think are the good guys that are considered to be the toughest, the fearless kind of Transformers that are sent in when the chances of success are slim. They're like the SEAL team. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, from what I hear, this miniseries is, is well-loved by the fans, and we should be able to enjoy this, I think. A little pro tip about this, you can start a free trial on Comixology, which is a, a website and an app, and I think you can get them on almost any device, and you can then... Check out this series for free. And I'm kind of excited for this. It's definitely out of my comfort zone. I can definitely see why anyone would be skeptical towards the Transformers. I recommend giving that I understand the reference episode a listen, and maybe I'll be more excited about this as I am. Maybe I'll be more inclined to give this a go. I'm actually looking forward to this. And um, this is going to be our second comic book now, so we actually can sort of compare and contrast, which is going to be good. Yeah, I'm thinking about, I haven't um, read anything on Comixology or anything on my sort of laptop before, but because I do have like a detachable sort of keyboard and it's just like a big flat screen, basically, I think this could be really cool. Like, could be a nice experience. So I'm really looking forward to it. I love, I don't know if it's a one-off or just the first of a series, like in terms of like a stand, like if, if there's like another one after the last stand of the records, but... I like things that you can just go into, you know? That's why I picked yeah. All-Star Superman, and that's why um, I read most comics that are a standalone story start to finish. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you, Peter. I think I think it's awesome that you can... Like, I think pieces that you can just go into and, and they're part of this really big universe are probably some really quality stuff. And that's a weird thing to say about, <laughs> for me at least, to say about Transformers. I'm with you on this, yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, because they always felt like so 
say on it. the surface, say, you say know, like uh, yeah. I mean, they're robots that turn into trucks. Yep. <laughs> how much? How much dark can it be? But I guess we're gonna we're gonna find out. Um, I think we'll enjoy this. Like I said, it's a five book series, and these books are. I'm counting them books. They're, they're issues, as... so 22-page issues. Yeah, they're issues. They're 20, 24, 25 pages each. So they're... it's not going to be a long read, and I'm going to you know, take my time with each one, kind of something I learned from also Superman, is to enjoy the drawings, enjoy the, the kind of expressions on the characters' faces. I don't know if... Do Transformers, do they have expressions on their robot faces? I don't know. But... I'm really going to take my time with this, and it's still going to be a fairly quick read, only five issues. So I think I might go deeper into the background of the Transformers. We'll see. Cool. Interesting. Awesome. So thank you, Peter, and thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. See you later, people. I big ate that thing from the fridge. The Culture Quest Podcast is part of All the People Network. Visit our website at culturequestpodcast.com to contact us or see a list of our upcoming episodes. Follow us on Twitter at CQ underline podcast and tell your friends about us. Find out more information about All the People Network and the other podcasts it includes at allthepeoplenetwork.com. You know, keeping up with what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like more trouble than it's worth. There's so much information flying around, it's almost impossible to get anything of value out of it all. But that's what Assorted Goods is all about. Every episode, your host, Dan, me, takes the time to break down and dive into a collection of news stories and topics, big or small, past or present. It's a podcaster's journey to learn a little more about the world, one story at a time. So stop by kick back, relax, and join me in my efforts to figure out some of the craziness, and maybe have a couple laughs along the way. Find Assorted Goods wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you there.